morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Inside the Writer Studio is also proud to be an affiliate of Libro FM, the audiobook platform that supports your local independent bookstore. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information on Libro FM and a special offer. My guest today is Australian best-selling novelist Kate Forsyth, whose novel The Crimson Thread is now available worldwide. Kate, welcome to Inside the Writer Studio. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you so much for having me. So you got to interview me last week about uh, my novel, The Enigma Affair. So I think it's only fair that we that we turn it around. And one of the things we found out last week is we have all these different points of connection, our, our connection to the Cotswold, our interest in Oxford fantasy writers, um, and our interest in writing historical novels. Um, you, you've been called, or at least I'm going to call you, a master of the historical novel. What, <laughs> what drew you to that particular form? Why did you want to write novels about, about things that really happened? Um, I think it's because when I was a kid, um, I was quite um, a sick child. And so I was very constrained in my physical body. And so my imagination loved to fly free. And the books I most loved to read were ones that were full of sort of magic and adventure and mystery that took me out of my own body. I was particularly drawn to stories that were set long, long ago and far, far away. And so this interest in other places and other times has just been a constant all through my life. Mm -hmm. Do you think, you know, growing up in Australia, the idea of, you know, so much of, of the canon of, of literature and in children's books is set in the Northern Hemisphere? I mean, um, in, in, at least in the English language, did that, do you think that played into the idea that these, these are places that are far away and that are different from, from where you lived? Yeah, I absolutely do think so. When I was a child growing up, most of our books were, most of our children's books were British. Mm-hmm. And even though there's been an amazing, um, you know, flowering of Australian children's literature since then, um, yeah. my imagination was shaped by the books that I read when I was a little girl. So, you know, Ina Blyton, mm-hmm. C.S. Lewis, Tolkien, Elizabeth Googe, um, you know, you know, books like that. Rosemary Sutcliffe. I loved Rosemary Sutcliffe. Yeah. I, I feel like, and I may be wrong about this, but it feels to me like we're sort of in this almost golden age of historical novels. I feel like every second novel I pick up is is a historical novel. Do you think, you know, 250 years from now, people are going to look back and say, oh, the 21st century, that's a time period when people liked to learn about history through through fiction, through novels, through storytelling? I certainly hope so. Um, I do uh, think there's a wheel of fortune in the literature industry where, you know, for a period of times, one genre of fiction really, really dominates. Mm -hmm. And then I think, um, you know, the wheel of fortune turns and other books become really, really popular as well. I think historical fiction um, occupies a really special place in many readers' imaginations because on the one hand, it has all the drama and, you know, vivid colour and um, adventure of fantasy, but it's set in a real place 
and a real time about real people. And so it bridges us to the past, to our ancestors, to our culture's past, um, but still is a damn good read. Do, do you think it, do you think fiction is an effective way for for people to learn about history? I think it is the most effective way. Yeah. Mm. You know, I feel that with absolute certainty and with great passion, uh, because what fiction does is it transports us. It makes us feel as if we were there. And um, on top of that, it tells of the lives of ordinary people just like us. While often um, history books focus on the big names, the big dates, and they are often told in a very dry, factual, um, even unengaging way. The best historical um, books are, are, are structured and written like novels. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the best historical novels have all the, the you know, depth of research and the um, assurity of fact-checking as a historical nonfiction. Mm -hmm. And so does that make historical novels particularly good at telling us the stories of history that we that we didn't learn in school, the 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 parts that have fallen between the cracks, or things that have been discovered about history. I mean, this is certainly true with World War II since since we were all in school. Yeah, I absolutely think that's um, true. Um, a lot of historical novel, you know, novelists are drawn to telling the untold story. Mm -hmm. You know, exploring. Um, you know that famous saying that history is written by the victors. Yeah. Often, um, historical fiction is written by those who are interested in the losers. Mm -hmm. So people of colour, um, you know, women, um, you know, ordinary people who, who suffered while, you know, the generals fought over their land. Um, you know, I, I think historical novelists like to explore and illuminate the gaps and lesions and lacunas in history. Mm -hmm. Now, your latest novel is called The Crimson Thread. It's set on the island of Crete during World War II. Uh, tell, tell us a little bit about the book. So The Crimson Thread um, is a retelling of the Minotaur in the Labyrinth myth, which is an ancient Cretan myth um, about a bullheaded monster locked up in a labyrinth under the palace of Knossos. I don't retell it as if um, you know, directly, I am using its symbols and structures to explore, um, you know, the lives of a, a young Greek woman who saves the life of two allied soldiers and keeps them hidden from the Nazis at great risk to herself and her family. So the, the invasion, the occupation of an island during a world war doesn't it's it's a complex thing. It's a it's a, a sort of disorganized thing. Uh, lots of different things are going on at the same time. History doesn't just arrange itself in nice neat packages like like a novel does. So how do you take this this moment in history, these years from you know just before the Nazi invasion of Crete through the Second World War, and somehow organize all of that into what what is your process for for taking that that mass of stuff and forming it into this shape that we call a novel that has a beginning and a middle and an end and a character arc and all those other things we've come to expect. 
Yes, it's one of the great challenges of being a historical novelist. There's a thousand trillion fascinating stories and fascinating facts that I have to choose to leave out mm -hmm. because I need to concentrate on what my core story is. And, um, you know, for me, my core story was the story of Alenka, this young Greek woman living in Crete during the invasion and her interactions with these two young soldiers whose lives that she saves and her her struggles to liberate her country and overcome her, her country's occupiers. And so that was my core story. And much as I would have loved to have shown what was going on elsewhere in the island or even elsewhere in the world, um, I, I had to narrow my focus down. And so I made it very narrow and very deep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love this idea, and I, I have done this in my novels too, of showing the grand events of history through the, the eyes of the ordinary people who are affected by those events. As you say, so often we're reading about the generals or the leaders or, you know, who who are not really, in many ways, not as affected by the decisions they make as a, a farmer, a shoemaker, an, an ordinary person in a town uh, far away. Um, talk, up, talk a little bit about the art of sort of taking a, a fictional character like Alenka and incorporating her into a, a real historical uh, time period. And how does that help you to shape her character as a novelist? Yes, I always think about um, what it must have been like for me if I had been there living through those times. What would I have done? How would I have felt? How would I have, have reacted? Um, you know, I've certainly never been trained to be a spy or, <laughs> you know, trained to be a soldier. Um, and then I imagine, um, you know, I imagine myself into the skin of my characters. Um, I like, you know, um, I do, you know, rich, deep, immersive research so that I know what their daily lives were like, mm -hmm. how they might have lived and worked and what they ate and and anything I can to bring the character to life. And then I weave the historical facts around them. I choose where they are and what they might be doing and how they might feel in response to what was really happening, you know, in true life. So, for example, there, there were, um, you know, terrible atrocities in Crete during the occupation. The Cretan people were one of the few civilians who rose up and fought and tried to overthrow, um, you know, their Nazi invaders and, and occupiers. And they were harshly punished as a result. And so I'm trying to imagine what it would be like to be a young woman seeing this happening, the shock, the horror, and then the slow determination that, you know, to resist and to fight. Yeah, I think to me it's fascinating how um, I mean we all all of us are people whose characters are shaped by the worlds that we live in, but by by being in wartime in an occupied place in a place where any step in the wrong direction could mean death for yourself or your family or your friends, um, character is shaped very quickly, which is sort of a gift to the novelist. I think. Uh, Absolutely, I so agree. So in, whenever we're writing historical novels, we have to sort of balance, I mean, we're writing a novel. I think we have to remember that we're writing a novel, um, but we want to get the history as right as we can. H how do you balance 
fact and fiction. And if you had times when, when you come up against a, a place where you say, no, I, I have to give my loyalty here to the story um, more than to uh, a, a particular historical fact or event, because, you know, I am in fact telling a novel and not, and not writing a work of nonfiction. Yeah, absolutely right. So um, I'll, I'll break the question into two parts and answer the okay. uh, second part first. Um, for me, um, the first thing I do is try and identify what I call the known facts, what we know and what has been established and is um, supported by empirical evidence. Mm -hmm. And then I lay those down as um, unmovable pigs. Um, but then I interrogate them, how much of them, you know, how much is actually true, how much is established fact, but, you know, there's no evidence for, how much movement is there. And then I'm interested in what hasn't been told, what isn't known. So I tend to lay down, so for example, you know, we know the date of the Nazi invasion into Crete. We know um, a great deal about what happened in the battles because of the recorded memories of the Germans, the Allied soldiers and the local Cretan people. I interrogate those two and find out what is true and what is not. And then I weave my imaginary life of my imaginary characters around those known facts. Um, I will only change or bend um, a known fact for the purpose of a story if it doesn't have any um, huge ramifications mm -hmm. for, you know, for true history. So, for example, in The Crimson Thread, I have a scene in which my um, heroine, Alenka, is helping to nurse um, all the wounded soldiers um, at the Villa Ariadne in Knossos which is true, this is this is what happened. But I have her working with a, a young Australian nurse there. Now the Australian nurses were actually evacuated off the island three days earlier. And so I, I slightly bent the truth yeah. by having them, you know, um, some nurses still on the island, even though there weren't, because, um, you know, my, my main reason for doing so was because I'd had an auction for um, you know, someone to have their name in in my novel, yeah. and the woman who who won the auction was called Faith Norton Green, and so I couldn't give her name to a Greek woman. Yeah. She had to be English or or Australian, and therefore she was a nurse. And I bent the truth very slightly <laughs> just to make sure that she could be have a wonderful role in the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I want to go back to what you you said when you were first talking about the book, and that is this sort of thematic presence and the underlying of the of the myth of the labyrinth, and also this idea of this the unbroken then at that time unbroken code of the Cretan hieroglyphs. That it all gives a sort of air of of ancient mystery to to the setting, to the novel, even to the characters. How, how do you use the ancient history and the mythology? To sort of illuminate what's happening in the in the modern story. 
Yes, I'm, um, I'm very drawn to ancient stories, um, myths and fairy tales and folklore, simply because they are so ancient. You know, humans have been inventing stories to explain our mysterious universe for more than 100,000 years. And these stories are astonishingly similar. They, you know, they change, but they stay the same. You know, Joseph Campbell said, it is the one constant yet marvelously shape-shifting story that we tell. And that's, I'm, I, I'm really drawn to that. Um, the story of the Minotaur is the story of having to face one's fear. The, in, in, in myth and fairy tale, the monster um, plays the role of a space in which we project our, our, our darkest fears and our, our, our least desirable attributes. So um, for in my novel, The Crimson Thread, the Minotaur stands for war, for the cruelty of war, for the, the hubris of one man deciding that he wants to rule the world and sending in his soldiers to slaughter all those that refuse to, to submit. That is monstrous. And... What's so uncanny about writing a book about the um, the cruelty and and arrogance of of war and the the dark emotions that drive it is how relevant it is today. What we are seeing in the Ukraine right now is exactly what happened to the people of Crete and and other invaded countries during the Nazi rampage. So um, and it. It also happened in the past. Crete is one of the most invaded countries in the history of the world. They have been invaded and occupied dozens of times by different people because of their strategic position in the midst of the Mediterranean Sea. And so by telling a story set in 1941 to 1945, but shining a light backwards into the history of Crete to its very dawn of time, the story of the Minotaur, which is, of course, a concealed or it's a story told in secret code, if you like. Mm -hmm. I'm also shining a light forward to our day now. And this gives the novel a kind of heft and a kind of weight and a kind of relevance that it might not have if I hadn't chosen to do that. Yeah, I feel like I would have read this novel with different eyes um, a year and a half ago before the before the invasion of Ukraine. Um, not to say that there aren't other invasions and occupations going on all the time, but that one has just been, at least in the in the Western world, has been so much in the news um, that I could not help but almost lay my newspaper and this novel side by side and and think, because you want to read a novel like this and go, well, never again. But as you say, you're really just in a continuum of history repeating itself. Exactly. And, you know, I, I do believe that um, that we as a human culture and a human society, I do believe that that we can grow and change it and evolve. But we need to be constantly reminded of the cost of um, complacency mm -hmm. and and the cost of turning a blind eye to injustice and cruelty. And so, you know, um, historical fiction can act as a clarion call to to remind us of what 
you know, what can happen and to make sure that we do our best to make sure it doesn't happen again. And I think what's been happening in Ukraine has had such a a psychic shock to our culture because we had begun to think that life was fairly peaceful. Now, obviously, the people of Syria and the people of you know Palestine and Israel and and many many nations in 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 Africa they have been dealing with war and strife and um and violence and cruelty for a long time but there was something about the Ukraine that caught the public imagination well a lot of us are told by our writing teachers you know that we should we should write what we know and you see a lot of people who write novels about their hometown or their part of the world. And, and and I certainly can name plenty of wonderful Australian novelists who have written about Australia. And you have written a novel about Crete, which is not exactly in your backyard. Um, what what first drew you to, to Crete and and made you think that this was going to be a good place to, to set a novel? My great uncle fought there. So, um, you know, when I was a child, I, um, I, I a young teenager, maybe 13 or 14, my grandfather first told me the story of his work during, um, you know, World War II mm-hmm. and also that of his family. So my grandfather was act- actually a cryptoanalyst. He worked for the Royal Air Force here in Australia and it was his job to decipher the secret codes of the Japanese. Mm-hmm. And um, he was uh, a natural-born musician he could play any instrument um and any music that he heard um he was never taught to read music he played by ear and um he said he he built a ham radio when he was about 10 or 11 taught himself morse code and then ended up having this secret war that he was not really meant to talk about so that really fascinated me and of course the crimson thread is you know turns on this idea of secret codes, secret messages, and, um, you know, this, you know, deciphering of what has been hidden. So that came from my grandfather. But he also told me the story of of my great uncle, whose name was Jerry. And he was fighting in Greece and Crete when he was only 22 years old. And he was part of the... um, the incredible evacuation of the Allied forces. Everybody knows about Dunkirk. Very few people know that the evacuation from Crete was at least as dangerous and dramatic and, you know, extraordinary. It was a year later. Um, He and his, his battalion had to retreat over the towering white mountains of Crete through the snow and through rocks that were so sharp that their boots were torn to pieces. My great uncle um, was barefoot, walking, you know, retreating through snow and and these razor sharp rocks. They had to hide in caves. They were being bombed by the Luftwaffe. They were being chased by top Alpine troops, flown in especially for the reason. They barely managed to escape with their life. Now, my great uncle... His Australian battalion was the last to be taken off the beach. He only, he was one of the last people to to get onto the um, boat. And when his commanding officer realised that about um, 
three or four hundred of his men was were being abandoned on the beach, he dived overboard and swam back and joined them and spent the rest of the war in a, a prisoner of war camp. So that story just affected me really, really deeply. My great uncle barely escaped with his life. And um and this act of courage by his commanding officer just really strongly affected me. So that's why I wanted to write a book about the war in Crete, because I had a very personal connection to it. But it's also because I love the Minotaur in the Labyrinth myth. Um, I've always been fascinated by it. It's one of the few Greek myths where a woman has a starring role, Ariadne, mistress of the Labyrinth. And it's one of the few Greek myths where... um, you know, they don't all die horribly at the end. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, so astute listeners will notice um, another point of connection between the two of us, which is an interest in cryptanalysis, especially during World War II, um, which is why you were such a good person to interview me about the Enigma affair. Um, but one of the things we also talked about that when we were talking about that novel is is making that trip, that journey to the place where the novel is set. Did you, did you travel to Crete? And if so, what did you... What did you find out there that you that you couldn't find out in a book that that became part of of the novel? Um, I most certainly um, travelled to Crete. My family and I had a month in Greece. Um, there were so many many things that um, I discovered that I could not have found otherwise. Um, you know, one was the sheer magnitude and presence of those ancient towering mountains. You know, they run like a spine you know, down the middle of the island, you know, dividing north from south. And they, no matter where you are, they are always there. They they are bare. They are stony. They are haunted by the cries of eagles. There are only one or two roads that that can actually cross them. And um, driving through them, I was overcome by such uh, extreme vertigo because the mountains and the you know the road is so tiny and the mountains are so immense and so high and it, you know um they're just wrecked with these incredibly deep ravines we, we you know we stopped the car and I'm clutching my grown children to me I couldn't bear for them to go near the edge of the road because it was so terrifying yeah, yeah. so no description prepared me I, I I had read dozens and dozens and dozens of people talking about the mountains, but until I was there, I did not realise what an incredibly powerful, um, ancient, brooding presence they have in the island. Um, the other thing that I realised is um, that the water around Crete is crystal clear, mm. absolutely crystal clear and extremely buoyant. So you know, swimming there, you can see your shadow on the white sands below you. If if a bird flies overhead, you can see the shadow of the bird and you can see the roots of the mountain plunging down. Um, and this, of course, um, brought it home to me how very dangerous it was um, if there were any British submarines coming towards the island to try and rescue the t- stranded soldiers they could be easily seen from the sky and they were all bombed and so the waters around Crete are littered with bombed ships and submarines you know from those you know from the British Navy the third thing that really really struck me is um how the war still lives in their memory so we got off the plane from Athens 
and went out and uh, to pick up our hire car. And the man in the office said to us in a very friendly way, so welcome to Crete, welcome to Crete. Where are you from? And I said, oh, we know we're from Australia. And immediately he began to tell me, he said, oh, Australians, we love you, Australians. You came, you fought for us, you saved us. My great uncle, and then he instantly launched into a story about how his family had been saved by an Australian soldier and that years later, you know, they planted a gum tree in their garden, you know, to, to commemorate it. It's living history. And because Australia was never invaded and never occupied in quite the same way, we we don't have this sense of history being you know, yesterday, yeah. next door. Yeah. yeah, I had a very similar experience traveling in Alsace. Um, going to some of the villages that were the last to be liberated before the Allies went across the Rhine. And in each of these little French villages, there was a memorial in the middle of town with a French flag on one side and an American flag on the other side. And they, you know, they remember. Um, and our our tour guide said was was thanking us, you know, two generations farther on from from those who fought. But it was it was intensely moving. Um, well, you know, I'm just getting all choked up now just thinking about it, how moving it is and yeah. how important it was. And for anyone who thinks that, you know, one shouldn't, um, f- you know, fight for freedom and fight for justice, stories like that I think show us the importance of yeah. knowing what is evil and what is not. Well, we've talked a little bit about the character Alenka, your main character, but let's talk about these these two gentlemen that she meets, these two soldiers, um, Jack and Teddy, who who say that they are best friends, but they could hardly be more different from each other, or, or certainly drawn as two very different characters. T- tell us a little bit about them and, and why you wanted to create them so in, in such a contrasting way. Um, well, I, I have often noticed um, that um, you know, friendships can work in that way. You often have, you know, you know, Teddy is charming. He's used to getting his own way in things. He's used to being the leader. He comes from a much more privileged background than Jack. His his family were rich. Um, Jack is is thin, dark, and clever. Um, you know, Teddy is tall and blonde and handsome, always laughing. But, you know, there is a, a darker aspect to, you know, Teddy's nature, which under the pressures of war and under the pressures of um, trying to survive, I think, you know, darken and harden into, into something that perhaps mightn't have happened if he'd stayed at home and got married to the girl next door. Um, Jack is very much based on my grandfather mm-hmm. and on my great uncle's. Um, you know how he looks. His he's musical. Yeah. He um, has um, a talent for maths, and is drawn to crypto analysis, just like you and me. Um, I gave Jack um, a lot of myself as well. So Jack has a great love of poetry, which is mine, and Jack has a profound stutter, which is mine. And how Jack. Um, slowly learns to overcome his stutter and finds um, himself growing and changing as a result. Um, I gave him my own personal journey, you know, 
the uses of music and singing and poetry to help one overcome a speech impediment and now widely documented, but they certainly were not in the 1940s. I, I look at these two characters and I see in, in so many ways sort of the two faces of, of heroes of the war. And in, in the one case, you have the sort of dynamic leader who's physically strong and people are drawn to him and he can, he can you know, lead people in the battle. And then on the other hand, you have this, this, this sort of softer, more intellectual character who becomes so good at the SOE stuff, the crypto, the, the, the sort of brainy side of the war that we didn't know very much about until many years after the war. Because as you said, it was the, the, the spy stuff, the cryptanalysis was all was all sort of kept secret. Um, and I love that balance between the two of them that sort of show that it's that it's not just the gung-ho um physically capable leaders in in a, in a soldierly way who were the heroes of the war because because jack ends up being in many ways much better uh in his soe training than uh than teddy does yes i mean that was one of the things that that absolutely um fascinated me because um the soe training is really more about you know quickness of thought mm -hmm. and the ability to um to pass unnoticed and the ability to um you know keep a cool head while um all the things that you know you know teddy thought made him a better soldier his strength his height his um his dynamic personality actually made him stand out in the crowd yeah, yeah. and that was not the qualities that were needed to become an undercover agent. You know, people may not know that, um, you know, the SOE, the Special Operations Executive, actually dropped, um, you know, British and Allied uh, officers into Crete where they lived hidden in disguise for up to two, two and a half years, um, having to pass as Cretan. And so, of course, Jack, being you know uh, smaller and dark haired and dark eyed, was better able to do that than Teddy. So, Alinka is fighting a battle not just um, outside of her home against against the invaders, but in, in many ways within her home as well. I mean, she she has what I can only describe as a dysfunctional family, but it's dysfunctional in a way that works so well in this novel. Um, tell us a little bit about her her family unit, what's going on there, and, and how that provides such a good narrative opportunity for the book. So um, Alenka's family, she lives with her mother and her half-brother. Um, her mother is strangely silent. She very, very barely, you know, very, very rarely speaks. Um, and when she does so, it's very difficult for her to do so. And gradually over the course of the book, we discover that she is mute because of past trauma in her life. Um, Alenka's half-brother, his name is Axel, which is, of course, a German name, not a Greek name. Um, Axel's um, father was a German archaeologist who um, was working at the Palace of Knossos and the ruined, um, you know, the old Minoan um, ruins there. And gradually we come to find out that um, you know, uh, Alenka's mother had been assaulted by this German archaeologist and and subsequently bore an illegitimate child. So Axel is the 
the embodiment of the Minotaur. Um, Ariadne is the embodiment of Ariadne. I mean, I'm sorry, Alenka is the embodiment of Ariadne. Um, and so um, that tension between the young woman who has to choose between, um, you know, protecting her half-brother, the Minotaur, or saving her country, that dilemma, you know, the expression horns of a dilemma actually come from the story of Ariadne and her half-brother, the Minotaur. Um, she's, you know, she has to choose, and it's an unbearably difficult choice. In the end, of course, um, what she chooses is absolutely crucial, both for her her brother's fate and for the fate of her country, just as it is in the original Minotaur in the Labyrinth myth. Yeah. And this brother sort of is associating with these, these Nazis. He kind of, um, it, it really personalizes the fact that that this is the embodiment of evil. And I mean, I think as novelists, we sort of, I think, I feel like it's one of the reasons we're gravitated to World War II stories because it's so easy to create the villains. I mean, it, it's not a situation where there was a lot of moral ambiguity about should they be mm -hmm. doing what they were doing. Um, but there's this beautiful moment in the book where one of the women on the island is is at the, at the unmarked graves of some of the Nazi soldiers who have died and is sort of taking a task for it. And she says, well, they were still someone's sons. Can you talk about sort of humanizing the invaders to a certain extent? Mm. It was quite important to me to show um, the, I suppose, some of the um, nuances of, of good and evil and of the choices that we make. And so I have, um, I have, evil German officers, because they were evil in in history. Um, the Butcher of Crete, um, you know, for example, the commander of the island was uh, responsible for some of the worst atrocities of the whole war. Um, but then I also have a scene in which a young German soldier um, lets Alenka and Jack go because of the beauty. Jack plays a bark piece of music prelude um, on, on the Cretan Lyra and he recognises the, the universality of music and he lets Alenka and Jack go even though he must suspect that she's hiding a soldier. So I wanted to show that the Germans were capable of compassion as well as, as the Greeks and the Allies. And then um, later I show, I mean, you know, to me the betrayal of Alenka's half-brother, Axel, he's a, a, a collaborator and a traitor to his country and to his family. That is the most heinous act of the whole book, I think. Yeah. Um, and so he is half Greek, half German, but he is capable of evil. And then Teddy, who is Australian, is on the, is a, on the side of the good guys, but he too has, you know, makes some moral choices that um, are reprehensible. Mm -hmm. So um, I was trying to show, I suppose, that um, war is not only the time in which we see the worst of human nature, but we can also see the best of human nature as well. Courage, uh, compassion, um, resilience, strength, determination. And by having a more balanced 
and nuanced view of good and evil in the book, I'm trying to show that um, it's not one's nationality that makes us good or evil. It's our own personal choices. I, I find one of the things I try to do as a novelist is sort of get inside the head of my characters. Where, you know, you want to try to understand them from the inside, and I've been inside the heads of of, mm. of booksellers and bishops, and and uh, even inside the head of an assassin. But it's you know when I was writing about Heinrich Himmler as a character, that was a head that was very uncomfortable to be try to be inside of. Um, when you were writing about the these atrocities that are that are committed by the invaders, are you able to sort of emotionally separate yourself from that as you're writing, or is that do you have that difficulty of you know if I can only get through a few paragraphs of this today that that I need to go outside and and breathe you know? I'm so with you, Charlie. Um, I'm I'm incapable of emotionally separating myself from any of my characters. I think um, it's a really important part of what we do as novelists, where we're actually projecting ourselves into the into the skin of imaginary characters. But if if they're going to come to blazing life on the page, we can't be emotionally separated um, from them. So. I, it is part of the challenge. How do we deal with such um, monstrous material um, and still, you know, manage to do our job? And like you say, I think that, you know, the most difficult scenes, we do our best, but we need to. I quite like to go and have a swim in the ocean yeah. afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I, I try and and write the scenes with as much sensitivity and um clarity and truth as possible i don't ever soften the truth but i don't have a like a kind of read vicarious you know you know pleasure in writing it either i think and often i'm telling it from the outside as in it's a linker's horror it's a linker's um uh, uh emotions that i'm exploring that said, the scenes told from Axel's point of view were actually fascinating to write, yeah. to, to try and understand how uh, a boy and then a young man does what he, you know, what he does. That was um, difficult for me, but also fascinating. And I really had, I did a lot of reading into, oh, child killers and, oh. <laughs> and you know, things like that. Well, we've we've talked about about war and mythology, and I don't want people to get the sense that this is such an incredibly heavy and difficult book that they won't get through it, because it also happens to be a page turner. And at its heart, in a way, this is also a romance. I mean, this is a story about three people, um, and and there's a lot of love involved between the three of them, and and only two of them can end up together because that's just the way the world works. Can you, mm -hmm. can you just to, to wrap up, talk a little bit about the, the sort of romantic element of the story? Yes. Well, you know, um, love of course is one of the most universal of emotion, you know, of human emotions and um, you know, the, the, you know, our, our longing to love and be loved drives a great deal of, of our behavior um, you know, there is a triangle. It isn't really a love triangle. Mm -hmm. There's as much tension between Jack and Teddy and the and the strain upon their friendship mm -hmm. and the tests of their loyalty to each other 
as 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 anything else. And then there's Alenka and her, you know, she's she's caring for and hiding two young men. And even though she's more naturally drawn to one than the other, her primary focus is simply surviving. Um, the I often say that my books tend to be journeys into the underworld, into the darkness of the underworld, and then the journey back again into the bright, what I call the shining upper world of life, of love, of, of healing, of, um, of reparation. And so that's the classic journey, which is, of course, the journey into the labyrinth and out again. Um, psychologically speaking. And so um, I always knew that I was going to end the book um, in in April 1945 mm -hmm. because two really important events happened then. Well, three, really. One is Hitler's death. Yeah. Two is the final act of war in Europe was the signing of the surrender in Crete. And it actually happened in the Villa Ariadne at, at Knossos. And that was the final surrender of the German forces. And then the third thing was this just happened to uh, reoccur with Easter. Um, and in, in Greek culture, Easter is uh, an incredibly important and symbolically significant date. It's all about rebirth, resurrection, about joy, about, you know, it's called Bright Week. And so... You know, sometimes when I'm writing a book, it's like the facts of the world arrange themselves to perfection for me to use. <laughs> it was I, so perfect. I just love when that happens. And, and I'll be honest, I I almost picked up an almanac to try to figure out, did she move the date of Easter? Because that's just too perfect. But then I thought, no, there's no way she would have done that. So. No, it was but it is. I mean, it just, it, oh, it just it just fits without giving anything away. It just fits everything so well with that. That, that that would be the week that that would happen. Well, we oh, like to. I just have to say that when I realized I got such an electric thrill all through my body, I was going, thank you, thank you, thank you, universe, or whoever arranged it, just to yeah. suit my story perfectly. And that's, I mean, to me, that's one of the great joys of writing the historical novels when those moments happen, when, when the reality is so much better than what you would have invented, you know. So we like to end every episode of the Inside the Writer Studio with the same 10 questions. You should be able to answer each of them with just a few questions, but hopefully they'll give us a little insight into you and into your writing. So if you're ready, we will begin. What word do you love to work into your writing? Joy. What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? Plump. Where's your favorite place to write? In my writing room that you can see behind me now, I, it's all lined with books and art, and I have put it set up exactly the way that I like it. I can write anywhere, but this is by far my preferred place. Well, if you can write anywhere, that makes the next question a little tricky, which is where could you never write? <laughs> Underwater. Okay. <laughs> to what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? Dangling participle. Okay. What was the first book you remember reading? The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by oh, C.S. Lewis. Oh. What are you reading now? I'm actually reading a book called The Islands by an Australian writer, Emily Brugman. I've just come back from um, a festival in Perth, um, and The Islands is, um, I mean, really, they're not islands. They're 
you know, you know, reefs and atolls where um, there was a, a great shipwreck in the late 17th century called the Batavia. It's one of like the most heinous crimes in in human history. And so I got really fascinated with this, the geography and the history of this place while I was there last week. What book would you like to have written? Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell. Oh. What sort of book would you like to write but probably never will? Um, a comparative biography of Emily Dickinson and Christina Rossetti. Wow, that's specific and fascinating. <laughs> and finally, <laughs> what would you like to hear a reader tell you? Um, that I that that one of my stories saved their life. This has but been I, I have been told that many times, but it's my favorite thing to be told. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and my guest today has been Kate Forsyth, whose novel, The Crimson Thread, is available wherever books are sold. Kate, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Charlie. Inside the Writer's Studio is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. Inside the Writer's Studio is proud to be affiliated with Libro FM. Unlike other audiobook platforms, Libro FM supports your local independent bookstore. Whether you buy a single book or, like me, a monthly subscription, you can link your account to your local store or to Bookmarks to support literary community. For a special two-for-one offer, go to Libro.fm and use the discount code WRITERS. If you've enjoyed Inside the Writer's Studio, please consider leaving a rating or review online at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside the Writer's Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. On our next episode, I'll be talking to debut novelist Lauren Nossett about her campus thriller, The Resemblance. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion. (laughs) 